We've been talking a lot about the great resignation here in society of, of people quitting their jobs, finding new opportunities, and employers struggling to retain employees as a result. I don't, I think of it as a great resignation, but I'd reframe it as the great rethink. Employees are rethinking the role of work in their lives. And what they have seen over the last two years is that they can be productive, they can get their work done, and they can live their life on their own terms and work fits into their life rather than their life fits into their work. Uh, and so people want that flexibility. They want that level of trust uh, in the way that they are they operate, in the way that their organizations and their leaders lead. And so they're if they don't, they're not getting that where they are today, they're open to looking for opportunities where that is available. I am very appreciative to welcome this week's guest, Sheila Subramanian is a vice president of the Future Forum, where she leads go-to-market content and programming initiatives. Prior to this role, Sheila spent four years at Slack in a few leadership roles, including as the head of global enterprise marketing, where she drove the team's shift to a B2B organization. She also led the product marketing team building elements from the ground up and launching Slack in the enterprise segment and five new countries. Before Slack, Sheila was the Vice President of International Business Development and Operations at Jana Mobile, where she led the company's entry and growth in 11 markets. Prior to Jana, Sheila spent five years at Google, where she drove marketing and strategy for a range of products. Most notably, she co-founded the Global Market Development Team, where she led global and multicultural go-to-market efforts for the company. Sheila received a BA from Stanford University and an MBA from Harvard Business School. She's the proud mom of two magical daughters. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you for having me, Karen. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. Now, we have listeners from all over the world. And so could you tell them, please, where are you calling in from? And is there a particular food or a site that you would recommend for anybody visiting your area? Sure. So I'm calling in from the San Francisco Bay Area, more specifically Oakland, California. And our area is known uh, very much for our sourdough bread. And the New York Times recently claimed that California, namely uh, a place in Oakland, has the best bagels in all of America. So we, uh, we recommend that you check out our sourdough bread as well as now our bagels. That sounds super tasty. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sheila, you are vice president at the Future Forum at Slack. And so for our global listeners, could you please explain what Future Forum is about and why it, it exists. So the Future Forum is a consortium that's backed by Slack. And we've partnered with organizations like Boston Consulting Group, Management Leadership for Tomorrow, as well as Miller Knoll. And we've come together to research and figure out how to make work work better. Now, in a recent Wall Street Journal interview with Catherine Bindley, you shared insights from the latest Future Forum report, and I'm quoting you here, 95% of people surveyed want flexible hours compared 
with 78% of workers who want location flexibility. Could you tell our listeners more details about this? So um, in March 2020, two years ago at this point, we saw organizations make changes than they, bigger than they ever thought were possible. And, and many organizations did the, the lift and shift. They took their office-based practices, they lifted them, and they shifted them into people's makeshift offices within their homes. And what we saw was not necessarily transformation in how people were working. It was more transition in how people were working. And over the past two years, people have had more opportunities to enjoy flexibility, both in terms of where they're working, as well as when they're working. And there's no going back to the nine to five, five days in the office that we were all doing before um, the pandemic started. What people want is more choice over where they work, when they work, and, and how they work. And we're seeing that in the numbers. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Now, I'm very curious. How are you addressing flexible hours, the, the, the preference of flexible hours at Slack? What we have seen is that everybody's days are different. I can speak for myself. Uh, I have two young daughters and I use the mornings to get them ready for school and, and drop them off at school. And in the afternoons, there are times where um, I need to get things ready for dinner or run an errand or go to an appointment. And that was not possible. Everything was very much rushed in the nine to five era. And at Slack, what we've offered individuals is the opportunity to commit to core working hours. So for my team, core working hours are times where we come together to discuss, to debate, to decide specific topics where we're generally available. But outside of those core working hours, it's up to you to decide when you want to work and when you need to take care of personal things. And um, the core working hours for my team are between the hours of 9.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. Pacific. So it also accounts for differences in time zone, um, both globally as well as within the U.S. That sounds wonderful. I wish I, you know, when I was working at Corporate America, that would have been possible. But that was, you know, decades ago. Um, now, the survey also found that 72% of workers who weren't happy with their level of flexibility, whether that's now time or location, are likely to seek out new opportunity in the next year. And so I'm curious, what's your perception? Why is it still so difficult for organizations to provide flexible work environments? So I want to address the first stat that you mentioned. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the great resignation here in society of, of people quitting their jobs, finding new opportunities, and employers struggling to retain employees as a result. I don't, I think of it as a great resignation, but I'd reframe it as the great rethink. Employees are rethinking the role of work in their lives. And what they have seen over the last two years is that they can be productive, they can get their work done, and they can live their life on their own terms. And work fits into their life rather than their life fits into their work. Uh, and so people want that flexibility. They want that level of trust uh, in the way that they are they operate, in the way that their organizations and their leaders lead. And so they're if they don't, they're not getting that where they are today, they're open to looking for opportunities where that is available. And I think that the reason why employers are struggling with flexibility is, is back to the point around transition rather than transformation. Employers are still looking at activity, presenteeism, 
Oh, this person responded to my email at midnight. They must be working really hard. They are dedicated. They're looking at those measures rather than what is the value that this person is actually driving? What are the outcomes that they're producing for our organization? And so if employers can shift from let's clock the number of hours this person is working and time the amount of time it takes them to respond to me and shift that to, wow, this person has created a lot of outcomes for the organization, then flexibility is definitely possible. One more thing to note here, Karen, is flexibility is very tough to pull off without predictability. And within a lot of corporate environments, people run into fire drills where they have to swarm around a specific topic um, on any given day and they have to drop everything else that they're doing. A lot of those fire drills are not necessary. And it's really important for leaders to also think about predictability. How do they plan out the week? How do they get a sense of what they're expecting from their employees over over that given week or that given month and communicate it so that people understand what outcomes they can drive but they can also understand um, what they should expect over a certain period of time. Yeah, now what you just said is so important. It's like that that trust aspect. I feel that was, in my mind, initially one of the reasons why there was such a reluctance to do remote work or to allow it. Then the pandemic, there was no choice. And now what you are saying, the presenteeism and the hours worked, and it sort of brings me up to my next question, because I feel flexible work conversations today in North America still do not really include conversations about part-time careers or job sharing or top sharing or compressed hours. And so at the same time, you know, anybody listening to us who has younger children or children as a whole or has a schooling situation or elderly relatives look after during this pandemic, the childcare, and it's been super unreliable. And so it is leading many professionals to opt out. But by the same token, we look at Zurich UK and they added six words to their um, job ads and job sharing, flexible work and part-time work. And it led to a substantial increase of job applications across genders and across job levels. And so I'm wondering what will it take for that type of flexibility to become more common in North America? I could, I could speak to you about this for hours, um, but I, I'll, I'll consolidate my answer into three, three points. Um, so the first is, if you look at the executive ranks within uh, corporate America, 93% of CEOs in the Fortune 500 are white, and two-thirds of C-suite executives are white men. And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because the highest ranks within corporate America, they're monocultures. They're very homogenous in terms of background, in terms of... Um, in terms of education, in terms of past experience. So the first thing that we really need to invest in as leaders is ensuring that our executive teams are diverse and also um, have people who have taken breaks within their careers, have people who are um, working parents and leave early to pick up their kids or come in at a certain time because they dropped off their kids. We need to normalize that behavior because there's still such a stigma associated with it that you cannot be a caregiver and a dedicated employee at the same time. And that is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. So that's the first thing that I think is is really important. Um, The second thing is that we have to come to the table with trust. We need to come into the table with, we're all in this together. 
Um, so I was once introduced to job sharing when I was in business school and we, we did a case study on Denmark. And the key word was collectivism versus individualism. And when you look at careers, especially in America, they're, they're based on individualism. How are you ranking versus how are we together making the business better? So a big part of culture needs to be about trust and working together in collaboration rather than uh, right now, promotion is very much about how are you as an individual performing? So that's the second point I think is, is absolutely important to make. And then the third is, um, is in terms of society, the, the safety net um, is, is also very important, but we also need to think about how employers are thinking about perks. Before the pandemic, especially within the tech industry, perks were free dinner. Um, they were that foosball table, you know, drinks after after work. And I'm a working parent, and I never went to any of that because I needed to go home and take care of my kids. There's an opportunity to take that money that you once invested in that foosball table and think about perks to help caregivers, whether that's helping them with meal prep or helping them with um, just day-to-day -day taking care of their house or helping them even with their kids, whether it's tutoring or um, credits for babysitting. Oftentimes, so much of the networking that happens within um, organizations happen after hours, and that's an added expense. It's an added burden for caregivers who have responsibilities after traditional hours of work. Thank you so much, Sheila. And I couldn't agree more with you. Yes, it's... Um... It, there's still so much opportunity to help working parents or caregivers as a whole to really, you know, have perks that help them, um, you know, with their lives and be able to have a work-life balance. And now you said um, about there needs to be more parenting out loud or in general, you know, more, um, you know, flexible work on the top leader um, rank within an organization. So I happened to see on German LinkedIn, there was a recent debate because they found that 32% of female leaders work in part-time um, roles in Germany, but only 3% of male leaders. And so one of the recommendations was how can we get more male leaders in particular to start working part-time. And so I'm curious, like, you know, to be honest, I have not seen that many, well, I, I don't know many examples really of male leaders within the U.S. who are talking about how they are doing a, you know, leadership position, whether it is in job sharing or part-time or, you know, do you have um, examples about that? Yes, and, and I, I think I'm going to take it beyond working part-time to normalizing flexibility. Mm -hmm. And that needs to start to using, using working parents as an example. That needs to start from the beginning. So that comes to parental leave. And what you oftentimes see is that women take their, their maternity leave that's given, whereas men maybe take a week or two of, of um, that maternity leave. And or sorry, that parental leave, excuse me. And so I think it's really important for one, to provide parental leave rather than maternity and paternity leave and to encourage, um, encourage parents to take it, but also to pay them during that time. So what I've seen from some data is that more than 60% of men took the full amount of parental leave when they were actually paid for it. 
And that's a really important note to make. I think it's also important for male and, and female leaders who are um, at the executive and senior leadership levels to take their full amount of parental leave and to disconnect during that time. Um, to set that model, to set that tone that it's totally okay for all other employees within the organization. So that's the first step um, in terms of normalizing flexibility. I think the second piece is, you know, whether it's part-time versus, versus full-time, it's also the issue of proximity bias or favoritism toward um, employees who are in the office or are located close by. And throughout my career, I have seen oftentimes working fathers working till 8 p.m. in the office alongside many executives, whereas working mothers leave early to go take care of their families. And we need to address proximity bias head on, giving people the opportunities because they are, um, because they are located close by or working in the office or they're showing those hours. Leaders need to be very cognizant of that proximity bias because what we're seeing is that um, women, employees of color, working parents, they're opting for more flexible models, whereas executives, white employees, as well as non-parents within the US are opting for more in-office models. And so the divide continue if we don't address proximity bias head on. And, and last but not least, yes, I encourage um, you know, both men and women to, to take more flexible approaches to embrace part-time work, but um, that needs to happen across all levels rather than just certain levels in order to truly normalize it. People are aware that it's okay to do that. I'm curious because you just um, talked about the um, proximity bias. And I'm wondering now, as you had addressed already a bit that um, more women tend to um, ask for flexible work in the sense of remote work. And, and how do organizations deal with it right now that if you have indeed more executives and maybe um, uh, white and male leaders or employees tending to go back to work versus other people trying to um, up to be on more remote um, basis, how does an organization ensure that there is no bias starting to creep in through that? So the first thing um, that executives need to be aware of is that their own behavior matters. So if you're saying flexible work is okay, and you're the first one to come into the office and you're there five days a week, middle managers will follow and that bias will be inevitable. So executives need to set the tone from the top and they should consider as we, as we think about um, what to ret the return to the office is going to look like, they should consider being the last to go back into the office as a way to send that message. The second is middle managers are struggling right now because they have not been trained to lead distributed teams. And so many middle managers rely on gatekeeping. They rely on, hey, Karen, is this done yet? And they rely on measuring people's performance because they are the first in, the last to leave, the fastest to respond to a message. That's how they've been trained to measure success. So it's really important for us to invest in coaching managers to lead distributed teams, but also reframe what success looks like to them from being that gatekeeper to being the coach, to being the empathetic partner to help people succeed. And last but not least, I think it's really important to um, think about how promotions are done as well. If everybody who's getting promoted or rewarded or given stretch projects to grow 
or people who are in the office or they are, you know, largely part of one group, there's an opportunity to rethink that and go back to the drawing board. Because what we can do intentionally is ensure that the people who are getting rewarded, celebrated, are doing so because of the outcomes that they're driving. And that's reflected in the, their own career trajectory and their access to opportunity. That is so important. And, you know, you mentioned that managers should be more thinking of themselves as coaches rather than have you done it yet? And now one of the parts of the workforce that I'm particularly supporting and interested in is returning professionals. And so when they return after a period of unpaid care work, they have really honed in these soft skills, these coaching skills, um, but they really struggle to get past the ATS in many cases because of that gap of paid work on their resume. But by the same token, there is a war for talent. And so I'm trying to figure out how can trailblazing companies attract more of that hidden talent? And do you have examples of best practices? So based on some research from, I believe, Manpower Group, um, what I saw was that among the millennial generation, 57% of male and 74% of um, female millennials are going to take a career break. So this is going to become increasingly common. And I think that return to work programs are a really strong signal to all employees that taking that break is okay. And you don't necessarily have to be on that elevator or rocket ship for a contiguous period of time. It's important to take that break, especially after um, the last two years. And so that the reinforcement that careers aren't linear, the reinforcement that professional uh, personal time is okay, is very, very important. I, I made a remark earlier about the importance of setting the model from the top and looking at executive composition. Um, I would also really advise companies to look at their executive teams. Has everyone on your executive team and, and in, among your senior leadership group basically been working in the same industry for the last few decades nonstop? Have none of them actually taken a break? That's an issue. Um, you really need to find people who come from diverse backgrounds and including taking breaks along the way. So make sure that that's reflected in your senior most hires to show that it's okay and you can grow in your career and it doesn't necessarily have to be a linear path. The second thing that I think is really um, important for companies to invest in is actual formal programs to recruit mid-career professionals who have taken that break. I recently read about Amazon and Amazon launched a return to work initiative that actually hires a thousand returning professionals. And what I thought was really interesting about their program is that they're giving mentoring and they're giving coaching as part of this 16 week program to returning professionals. And so what I like about that is that um, it, there's a formality to it, but there's also a goal associated with it. And there's formal coaching and mentoring that, that comes with it. So it's showing the commitment and the dedication to hiring people who have taken a break. So I think to, to sum up what I just said, make sure that you have a diverse set of people on your executive team, formalize the program and ensure that you're setting people up to succeed once they join your company. Um, and make sure that they have the resources in order to do so. These are really great examples and insights. Thank you. Um, now, we've talked a little bit before about building 
a community of trust or like a, um, a way of doing work within an organization that relies on trust. So now somebody listening to us might say, how do you actually build that culture of trust and outcomes? Uh, do you have some tips to that for that? I think that um, organizations need to be very clear about what success looks like. Very simply, what are the numbers that each team needs to achieve or what are the goals that they need to achieve over the course of a quarter or over the course of a year and make it really clear that these are the goals and these are the top priorities the second is giving them the resources the people the the budget to achieve that oftentimes it's you need to hit this number but you know it, it, we don't have enough people we don't have enough uh, budget you need to figure out how to do it that's leading to this burnout, this culture of overwork, as well as levels of competition that are unnecessary. So ensure that people have what they need in order to succeed. And the third comes to building the culture itself, promoting um, collective success rather than individual success, celebrating teams that are working well together rather than that one superstar manager who gets lauded week after week after week. It's really important for, for cultures to be about how people work together, how people get along, and there's investment in that rather than just celebrating those superstar individual employees. Because that then creates a toxic culture where you're not trusting one another, you're not necessarily helping when one person is out. And um, in order to have cultures of outcome, in order to lead with trust, you need to celebrate people coming together rather than um, being divided and try to do things on their own. Looking a little bit ahead. So originally people had been thinking by now, everybody would have returned to the physical office and the pandemic would long be past us. But obviously that is not the case and it is taking much longer than anticipated. So what do you think will the usage of the physical work office actually look like once more people will be able to return? So being flexible does not mean that the office is totally dead. Rather, it's really important to encourage employees to come in on a regular basis, whether it's monthly, quarterly, twice a year, in a way that works for them, just not every single day. And so what we actually miss about the office based on future forum data is having a place to build camaraderie and connection. So 80% of employees want to use it as a place to foster that social connection, whereas only 20% want to go in day, day after day and do their individual work. So there's an opportunity to take the office and redesign it to enhance networking between employees and across levels as well as give people opportunities to stretch projects or, or career enhancing roles. There's an opportunity to use the office for collaboration, to foster social connection and build a belonging. Um, but it's really important for leaders to be intentional about what the office is for, for networking, for team gatherings, for mentorship, and what it's not for which is presenteeism, perceived busyness, as well as individual work to just show that you're working. And also then set the appropriate guardrails for behavior. I think a great example is Dropbox. Um, they've converted their offices into studios. Hmm. 
So teams can get together and collaborate. They can get together and foster that social connection, but they've made the heavy signal that the office is no longer to come in and show that you're working. You can do that in your own flexible way, but the office is actually for building those team bonds that are oftentimes tougher to build over a screen. One follow-up question on that. There is now a generation of professionals, young professionals who may have actually never had that experience of going into an office day to day. So I'm curious, has your organization found some data on that, how their mind shift has already completely changed from what they believe work is like, or, you know, because they don't know any other way? It's interesting. So what we saw from data a few quarters ago was um, was that the younger younger employees actually preferred flexibility. They like to have that flexibility in terms of how and when they worked. Um, but there's also the opportunity to use get-togethers, in-person gatherings for mentorship, and and having that dedicated mentorship um, for employees, having that dedicated networking. Um, as well as uh, as well as you know opportunities for collaboration. So to your point, you know many younger employees have never been exposed to the the nine to five running into office wanting to to, to be on time. Um, but there will be opportunities, especially as things open up, for them to get that in person connection, but also to meet their desire to have a more flexible way of working. And now, as we're talking about the future of work, so where do you think companies need to be on what they need to do over the next sort of, say, five or 10 years to stay competitive? I think um, the, the market is showing, the great rethink is showing that employees have power. They have choice. And I think it's really important for leaders to get more comfortable with listening to employees and leading with two-way transparency. So there's, there's one piece here that I think many leaders are not comfortable with, and it's leading with candor and frankness of saying, I don't know, or we're figuring it out, or I need your help. And what we've seen over the last two years is that's what employees want. That's the level of transparency that they're expecting. Second is what we're seeing from the data is that while um, CEOs are leading the return to the office charge. They're not necessarily including employees outside of their executive teams or outside of their inner circle. And it's really important as well for leaders to get feedback, to listen to employees across backgrounds, levels, functions, as well as locations to better understand what their needs and wants are um, and ensure that they're building the, the culture, the guardrails, the principles to address that. So that's the second area that I think is important in terms of staying competitive. And the third is something we've been talking about for the last um, 30 minutes, and that's trust. It's trust your employees. Trust that they're, they're looking out for the needs of the company. Trust that they'll produce those outcomes. And stop monitoring them. Stop checking if they're working a certain number of hours. It's not the hours work or worked or the amount of time worked within a certain period in the day or the number of days. It's the value that you're creating for the company. So trust your employees to do the work on their terms. It was such an insightful conversation with you, Sheila. I just want to make sure, is there anything else that we have not touched upon that you would like to share with our listeners? 
I think that over the last two years, a lot of leaders and organizations have talked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But as you're thinking about your employees, as you're thinking about um, your return to the office policies, they all need to be ingrained. Your DE&I policies need to be part of your future of work and future of uh, the office policies and, and vice versa. So as you plan, not just for the next three months, but for the next three years, for the next 10 years, ensure that you're being really intentional about how you're building an equitable environment for your employees. Because it's um, diversity is important for business. Diversity is important for uh, outcomes and, and what your teams produce. And it's really important that you build work to fit for all types of people rather than just yourself or your, your executive team. Um, and that's the only way that you're going to be able to retain and keep your employees engaged and motivated in the coming years. Thank you so much, Sheila. It was such a wonderful conversation. Now, I want to make sure, how can people find you on social media? So I want to make sure that I give a plug for the amazing work that the Future Forum team is doing. You can find more research at futureforum.com, as well as on Twitter and LinkedIn at Future Forum. And feel free uh, to reach out to me as well via LinkedIn as well as Twitter. I am at Sheila RS. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you, Karen. It was wonderful being here today. It really was. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas. To keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.